2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Bear Sage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. Welcome, Ed. Hey, good to be here, Ron. We have a great guest today, Dr. Tim Smith. I'm really excited about this. He's a former, he's a fellow colleague at the Professional Pricing Society, where you and I are Honored to uh, teach as well, and he's the founder and CEO of Wiglaf Pricing. He's an adjunct professor of marketing and economics at U- DePaul University, and he's the author of Pricing Done Right, which is his latest book. And the first book I read of his, which I think is excellent, pricing strategy. He's, uh, he speaks on pricing topics to professionals literally around the world. I know this because I spent time in Sao Paulo, Brazil with him. Uh, and he began his career as a research scientist in quantum mechanics. He's an academic advisor to the Professional Pricing Society Certified Professional Pricing Program. He's a member of the American Marketing Association, the Business Marketing Association, and the American Physical Society. He's got a B.S. in physics and chemistry from Southern Methodist University, a B.A. in mathematics from Southern Methodist, a Ph.D. in physical chemistry from the University of Chicago, and an MBA with high honors uh, from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Tim Smith, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise.
1: Well, thank you, Ron, and thank you, Ed. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you all.
2: Oh, it's great to have you here. You're a big hero of mine and a mentor in, in, in the area of pricing. And I've got to ask you, you've got a Ph.D. in physical chemistry. How did you get into pricing?
1: I fell into it. Um, <laughs> it it's, it's, that's the short answer. No, Yeah, I got a Ph.D. in quantum mechanics. Um, that's not uncommon for Ph.D. physicists to have to move fields. About a quarter of them go into finance, Wall Street, a quarter of them go into consulting, and a quarter of them go into, uh, well, entrepreneurship. I chose the entrepreneurship route. The other quarter stays in academia, mostly. Right. As an entrepreneur, I started to explore, started out in sales and technology, kept talking about value-based selling, And lo and behold, somebody caught on to the idea that value-based selling and value-based pricing were basically the same, but one required math. And now, wait a minute. I can do selling, and I can do math. That makes a pricing professional. Let's do that.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Well, you know, I read your first, I'm not sure if it's your first book, but an earlier book of yours, Hawks, Seagulls, and Mice, Um, and, and, and that is kind of focused on the selling side, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that was my very first book, Hawks, Eagles, and Mice, where I was trying to look at the structure of sales and marketing across different industries and how they vary. Um, it was an interesting book. Had fun with that one.
2: Yeah, no, there's some great things about it, and maybe if we have time, I'll, I'll ask you a question about it. But I'd I'd love to jump to your pricing strategy book. Um, which was published in 2012, and, the, and I even like the subtitle, Setting Price Levels, Managing Price Discounts, and Establishing Price Structures. And I know Ed's got some questions for you on discounts, but you write in that book, the science of pricing refers to the act of gathering information and conducting quantitative analysis and you know, revealing accurate understanding of the range of prices likely to yield positive results. But then you say the art of pricing refers to the ability to influence consumer price acceptance, adapt structures, and align pricing strategy. Is pricing more of an art or science, or is it, as you write, more conceptual than anything? I mean, you say it's not an engineering challenge, but it's a strategic challenge.
1: Well, I I fundamentally agree it's a strategic science, which Puts it closer to the art area than it would to be to say that it's purely just a math problem or a scientific area. There's great things we can do in pricing in terms of teasing out elasticity and and uh, and doing the conjoint analysis and setting prices or trying to engineer a price waterfall to capture more money on the on the area. That's all true. Algorithms are useful, absolutely. Algorithms will routinely lead to the wrong direction as well. And if you just put pricing as just a mathematical field, um, you're going to leave a lot of money on the table and a lot of opportunity. I I do believe when you you think about price structures, how do you actually think about your customer segmentation and whether or not you wish to use tiered pricing, bundled pricing, two-part tariffs? Now, that's an art issue. How do you define the unit being priced? Well, you know, this makes normal sense if you're selling bananas. But when you're selling something stranger, like data sets, what are you actually selling? Are you selling a data element? Are you selling a set of fields? How is that field used? affects the price you can get for it. So the the trade-offs and the choices and the problem space becomes much more interesting, and that's where you'd still... It's still a bit
2: of an art, absolutely. Well, well, I love it because I think you write this in your latest book, Pricing Done Right. But you say although pricing is is you know price is not a competitive advantage, pricing may be, and I think that's what you're getting at, especially when you talk about the unit price, right? I mean, if you think about examples like Zipcar, changing the pricing model, or Uber, or iTunes in in music. Um, pricing can be a form of innovation, can it? The approach.
1: The approach to pricing, the way companies manage, the. I want to back up. Think of price, most people think of price as just a noun, a number associated with an object or a service. I fundamentally think of price seeing or price as a verb, an action, a decision, a decision which needs to be made continuously. And when you consider it as a decision, the ability of a company to manage that decision and decision-making process separates it out from the rest. So, therefore, it can be a competitive advantage. One One of the hesitations I have, and this is kind of academic is that for something to be a competitive advantage it needs to be inimitable somebody else can't copy it well if you say your price is 5.99 there's nothing stopping me from saying my price is 5.99 you cannot say by definition that price is a competitive advantage because it is completely imitable it may not be profitable but they can still imitate it so it's, it makes no sense to say I'm, I'm a, I have a competitive pro, uh, advantage through price. It can make sense to say our pricing or the way we address the problem or the address the target market, that does lead to a competitive advantage because that can be inimitable over a long period of time.
2: Right. No, that's a that's a fantastic point, um, Tim. What why. Uh why do you think cost-plus pricing is so endemic?
1: You mean why does it exist everywhere? Yeah, um, yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I like. I mean, despite our words. best efforts to kill it,
1: because it's simple. It's just simple, and it's common. If you go to better accounting departments, they'll even say we don't teach that you should price with cost-plus pricing. But I do teach how it works. It's it's a failed concept that has outlived its time, plain and simple. And when you think about value-based pricing, that's a new concept. But the problem with value-based pricing is, what does that mean? Mechanically, how do you do that? And cost-plus pricing is beautiful. It's mechanical. It says, let's. Drill down on our cost, understand that well, apply a piece of machinery called multiplication, and come out with a new price. Great, but that has nothing to do with value. And when I say value-based pricing, then the first question you have to ask is value. Value in whose mind? In my mind or the customer's mind? Who is my customer? No, which segment is my customer? Not everyone wants to be my customer. And we're... We switched the question from saying mechanics, science, engineering, and moving it into the area of saying art, questions, orientation of the firm to engaging its customers, its competitors, and outperforming. That's a harder question.
2: It really is. I mean, like you write in Pricing Strategy, that it's a shift from setting prices to communicating value. And... And it really does require a business model change, doesn't it, to engage in value-based pricing, even to shift from cost-plus to value-based. That is a fundamental business model change, isn't it?
1: It is. It really is a huge business model change. Uh, Processes get changed. Questions about discounting gets changed. The construction of products gets changed. The whole orientation of the firm to its market stops from being, we make Widget X, and Widget X needs to be that price, into we solve this customer problem, and solving that customer problem is worth something. Now, it's hard for companies that says, I make screws, to think in terms of, I make attachments. It's hard for them to make that shift and see that their screws are not just screws, it's an attachment. It enables an attachment between two items that need to be in it coupled, and what does that mean? Why? How do I do that better than the next guy over? That's a problem.
2: Right. It, it, uh, Clayton Christensen, I think, just came out of, with a new book, "The Job to Be Done," or something, and that's his theory: is what job is the the customer trying to perform with your product or service, and how can you make that job easier and better and more effective and all that? It's a, it's kind of an interesting. All-encompassing theory on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go back and say Ted Levitt was saying the same thing. Uh, He was talking about people don't buy uh, drills; they buy uh, they they don't want drills, but they want just holes in the wall. Uh, Or go back earlier to uh, Drucker, the great Peter Drucker, who says, you know, every the only profit center of a company is a customer a customer whose check hasn't bounced. So this line of thinking that the focus of the firm is a customer has been around for 50 to 80 years. It's not new. It's still being broadcast. It just hasn't overtaken the two other more common concepts of why companies exist.
2: Right. And, and you're right about Drucker. I mean, and, and that's the go- guy that coined the term profit center, <laughs> which he refuted 50 years later. He said it was the worst mistake of my life. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. there's only cost centers. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, this has just been fascinating, but uh, we're up against our uh, first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so by sending us an email at T S O E. At Verisage.com. And please check out our show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes from our uh, interview with Tim and links to his books and where you can find more information about him. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
0: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Well, we are honored to have Tim J. Smith on the show today, CEO and founder of Wigloff Pricing. And I have to ask, because I'm an English fan him. you must be a Beowulf fan. So, for those of those of the of our in our audience who are not up to speed on Old English literature, uh, g- give us the four one one on 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 who who Wiglaf was.
1: Oh my gosh! I love the fact you even read Beowulf. <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. Um, Wiglaf. Uh, the story is I was reading Wiglaf. Uh, reading Beowulf, and at the end of the story, the last third, Wiglaf, the character, comes in, and the best way to describe him is he was Beowulf's advisor. And eventually Beowulf handed the sword, well, Wiglaf handed the sword to Beowulf that killed Grendel's mother, and then Beowulf died. So he was also enabling Beowulf to slay his dragons. Now, if you're Mm going to name a consulting firm... Why not name it after the very first recorded Anglo-Saxon consultant who helped <laughs> the customer, the leader, slay his dragons rather than doing it for him? I thought it was a great analogy. And then I was uh-huh. no one read Beowulf. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it gives you the opportunity to
3: explain it occasionally, I, I bet. So that's that's kind of fun. Oh, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> So awesome. All right. Well, I went back back to some pricing, and and you have a mantra. And I, what whereas Ron dives deep into all of the books, I, I tend to watch the all of your videos. So I'm I'm more steeped in that. And one of the things that was a clearly a recurring theme was the three questions that you you start out with, which is what's my alternative? Are you better or worse? And why should I care? I, I, would you Would you mind unpacking that for our audience a little bit? I just think that those are some some great questions to ask from a pricing perspective.
1: Okay, so go back to why a a firm exists. A business exists to serve a customer need. That's that's its fundamental raison d'existence. Without that... Profitably. Profitably. Well, yeah. (laughs) Profitably, I will add. And I will add then, if the customer is not profitable, it is not a customer. It is a leech sucking the lifeblood (laughs) of the company out of it. Because... The lifeblood That's of a company awesome. is profits. So thinking in terms of why the firm exists, you get to the next question, how do I then serve customer needs profitably? Well, I've got to think in terms of the customer. The customer is coming to me or to you or to anybody and saying, well, I could buy this or I could buy something else. Well, why should I buy this? Is it going to meet my needs better? Or worse? And if it's going to meet my needs better, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for it, or I'm definitely going to buy it. If it's going to meet my needs worse, it better be cheaper. I'm not touching it. Then the third question, if it's better, but I didn't care that it was better in that way, I'm still not going to buy it. All you've done is over-engineered the product. If it's worse, but I didn't care what you took out of it, Bob's your uncle. I'm still going to buy it. And plus... You can make it cheaper so you make more money. So it's, it's a, those are the three basic questions in addressing your customers and addressing pricing. You can use it for price setting, structuring, discount management, everything.
3: Yeah, great stuff. I, I, as I was listening to you say those words on multiplication multiple occasions in the videos, I, I was thinking back to a blog post that, that I did a number of years ago. But And I think it's very much in alignment with, with some of the things that you, you talk about. So I want to share, share the thought. And that is, I, 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 for, for years, I have been working in the industry of, of, of uh, selling software to, to medium-sized businesses, right? And one of the, the things that I heard over and over again from so many salespeople was, well, we lost to no decision. We lost to no decision. We lost to no decision. I'm like, bullcrap. You didn't lose to no decision. You lost to no new boat for an owner. Right, so, the, so you had to be better because the, the customer did something with that money. They did something with that resource. And, and, and I think it's, it, was a, it was a misnomer to think that you actually lose to no decision. You just haven't made this value case as well. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yes, I think you're on the right track. It, for, when you lose to, to no, no decision, what you're saying is the customer never saw the benefits sufficient enough to invest the cash. purchase that goods Mm -hmm. and sometimes those benefits aren't there other times it's just simply didn't communicate it this brings me to a problem that I've seen also in selling software Um, I used to sell software to utility companies and they could purchase the software and save millions of dollars or they could purchase a new PowerPoint a power plant and serve hundreds of millions of dollars It turns out that often the new power plant was considered more important of an investment than a new piece of software. So you you end up substituting between complete categories, and you have to accept that. Not every customer is your customer. Not every customer is your target customer.
3: Yeah, so so critical. I think that's a huge mistake that so many people make. I think especially the organizations that I work with tend to want to be both McDonald's and Roots Chris. <laughs> like you, you, you can't, you can't do, you can't be both of those. No, you have to target your customer base. Absolutely. So, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that organizations make with regard to their overall price strategies? I'm
1: so glad you asked. It goes back to that question of treating price as an outcome that you just have to get it on this deal. I just got to get the price for this deal. I just got to get the price for this project, product versus treating price as a verb, as an action item, as a process to be managed. When you take a look at companies that get pricing generally right, they have built out their pricing department's They are treating it as a process, a process to be managed across the organization, across products, all the way down from strategy making through pricing strategy, market pricing, discount management, invoicing. They're managing a process that leads to the right price on every deal. Companies that got priced really wrong, they tended to make pricing decisions by one person who didn't pay much attention to it. A CEO says, no, no, we've got to win this deal. No, no, we've got to be cheaper. No, we're going to make our product new, the new Christmas item. Oh, we're going to try discounting, but we really don't know what we're doing. This is where you have big problems.
3: And to that end, I wanted to ask you a little bit about discounting as well. I, I uh, this is another just pet peeve of mine because it's, it is so uh, ubiquitous throughout software industry that you've got it. You, 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 the only way to win is is taking discounts on stuff. And do you think discounts are needed in some industries, or are they more just a symptom of of bad pricing strategy?
1: Discounts are needed in certain industries, but let's unpack what I mean by discounts. Sure. When you talk about price structure, like good, better, best price structure. That may work in a lot of cases. But even like the middle item, you might need a different price in Texas than you do up in, in uh, Portland, for instance. And mm-hmm. so you might want to be able to, to change the price between the two regions. or you might want to be able to change the price if they buy 1,000 versus one. So it makes sense to have a strategic discounting policy that can improve profits this separates out large-volume sales from low-volume sales, highly competitive markets from low-competitive markets, or all sorts of other variables that indicate that the customer is willing to pay a different number based upon these conditions, if they meet those conditions, I agree to always lower the price from some high aspirational price. So in some ways, your discounting can be structured, planned, managed, dynamically, over time. But your question was really about unplanned discounts. The ones where you just go into the room, negotiate and automatically cave in on the price or make exactly. some concessions. Now those unplanned discounts to me that's an area for ripe ripe for improvement in terms of restrictions, setting up rules, changing profit, changing incentives from revenue to profit, and otherwise helping attenuate the, the, the sens- sensitivity of price changes to profits of the firm and the ability of the firm to compete and invest in tomorrow.
3: Yeah, far, far too often I, I, I see discounting, Taking place for for bizarre reasons you know I like to say if you're if you're giving an end of year discount to get a sale in the door you know this month this quarter quarter this week whatever it is you' you're really you're really setting your price based on the position of the earth going around the sun um, which I, I don't know I just don't think that astrology is a very good idea for for
1: for a price strategy but um, no and <laughs> it's not and the, the key question to ask in pricing. I mean, in discounting, is how will that discount improve the profitability of this relationship? And if that relationship cannot be made profitable, it is unsustainable. It is not something worth investing in or worth keeping. Yeah, I, I, the, I think
3: the the words are important, and you know, some of the the words that I suggest for the, that that other people use, and I think this is what you were talking about when you were separating out the the the. What I want my question discount from what actually happens, you know, but you certainly can have things like promotional prices, right? Or um, a, 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 a preferred price for a customer, like you said, based on volume. But I, I think it's important to actually change the language around that because I think everybody piles any reduction in price from some aspirational price into the category of discounting, but they're really not. Would you agree with that statement that there's really, there's different categories and those should be separated out?
1: There are, I totally agree there are different categories of discounts and they must be separated out. I just wrote a paper on transactional target pricing talking Mm -hmm. about you could have a aspirational list price for the end customer, a standard channel discount that you give to all channel members. Then from there, you could have other kinds of standard discounts that are multi-year based upon volume or sections or customer type. Separating that out from promotional discounts for a certain season, excess inventory. These are reasons to lower the price to get rid of inventory, because you don't want to hold inventory, it just has cost, it doesn't have value. Uh, There are reasons for discounting, but these are totally separate from the unplanned, tactical, negotiated discounts where the salesperson just kind of said, I couldn't do better. I give up.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well,
1: great stuff, Tim. We're
3: up against our next break, but we want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself at AskTSOE at Verisage.com and also visit our website, TheSoulOfEnterprise.com where we will have show notes including our show notes from our interview here with Tim Smith, as well as any upcoming shows, previews of the shows that we have, and lastly, of course our live events page. So if Ron or myself is going to be speaking at, say, a Professional Pricing Society event upcoming, those will be on the page as well. But right now we want to go to our break right after this. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv
4: today.
1: 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com.
4: The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio. Voice America Business Network.
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Tim Smith. And Tim, your latest book is Pricing Done Right, the Pricing Framework Proven Successful by the World's Most Profitable Companies, a book I thoroughly enjoyed. And in that book, you lay out five key decisions that firms have to make in their their value-based pricing framework, the business strategy, the pricing strategy, market pricing, price variance policy, price execution. I know we've touched on some of these topics, but can you kind of can you kind of unpack each of those? Because I know they're all interdependent and they all have to work together.
1: Let's start up a business strategy. There, The question is, is, who's my target customer? Who's competing for that target customer? What am I doing as a company to differentiate and deliver to that target customer a better choice? So that's the business strategy, which immediately carves out your target customer set. From your target customer set or sets, you could have plural, comes the next issue of pricing strategy. And pricing strategy is four different groups. There is the question of price positioning, standard, skim, neutral, penetrate positions. I almost always advise go for neutral. That doesn't mean that you're the lowest price or the average price. It just means that your price reflects your benefits but I understand reasons for going for skim and penetration. Beyond, though, price positioning is price structure, and there the standard portfolio of price structures are unit, two-part tariff, tiered, bundled, add-ons, subscriptions, revenue management a la airlines. And then we have some new ones that are still being developed. After price structure comes pricing capability itself. How are you going to develop the team, the software, the processes to manage price? Are you going to keep it simple, like an Apple? Are you going to add some complexity, like a Samsung? And finally, competitive price reaction matrix. If a competitor changed the price, do you have to adjust, or can you ignore Should you adjust to change the competitive dynamic? And when can you just simply have to walk away in order to survive and battle another day? What is your competitive price reaction to a competitor, to a new entrance, to a change? Then comes the market pricing. How do I set the price of of a product or a service? What methods do I use? Follow that with the price discount management price variance policy, which Ed and I touched on a little bit earlier. Finally, execution. And there has been a revolution in configure price quote or quote to cash in terms of enabling companies to get the right price to the right customer at the right time according to the rules set above. And you might think that companies could manage to invoice customers accurately, but if you've worked at a company that's larger than two people, you realize how often they get it wrong. <laughs>
2: Good point. You know, under that price execution uh, and structure capability, you know, you write that uh, pricing shouldn't be extremely centralized or decentralized. You say both have failed in most firms. You advocate a cross-functional team from marketing, sales, finance, and pricing. Can you kind of explain why you think or what you've seen empirically – that proves that you can't just leave pricing is too important to leave just to the pricers
1: that's coming out of direct research in germany that looked at how companies make decisions and pricing and profit outcomes they actually did a regression analysis on return on assets against decision making processes which i find amazing they were able to get this done very good research In their research, they demonstrated that the firms that tend to be the most profitable are firms that neither completely centralized nor completely decentralized decisions and firms that make those decisions using a teamwork approach rather than a single point. And they made better decisions over the course of years, even in highly turbulent, fast-changing companies as well as stable industries. Why is a harder question? It's one thing to prove a correlation, it's another way, another problem to show, to show causation. And the why, it comes down to information. There's no way a centralized pricing group has the same ta- tacit knowledge about customers and market dynamics as a salesperson in the field. One of the core problems. And pricing is how do I marry the tacit knowledge that is gathered out in the field with the explicit knowledge of science that which can be done centralized towards making a better decision, and if I don't, I know I will underperform
2: right now, you know when you when you talked about that, it made me think of target costing that the Japanese are famous for. And seem to be way ahead of us in terms of, of how they do it. But I remember reading about Toyota. It's actually the lead engineer who's responsible for the pricing, and he now, of course, he or she is going to have a team, and and it's it's not just his decision alone. But it just it it does seem to be a good marriage between the centralized and and the decentralized uh, aspects of it that you were just that you just mentioned.
1: Toyota's done it. Nissan's done it. Southwest has done it. Ikea has done it. Virgin Atlantic First Class has done it. Most recently, or what I think may be the next hot Christmas item, Sony PlayStation virtual reality headsets took that same approach. I'm going to target a customer group, the gamer. I'm going to target a set of benefits, ergonomics, give up some other benefits, high-definition virtual reality, because they don't need it. Put it in there at a target price, 400 bucks, appropriate for family-friendly budgets, and target cost everything below there to make sure I deliver something that those customers are willing to pay for and will love. I'm I'm really thinking strategically, this could be the next hot product.
2: Right, right, interesting. You know, you also and you mentioned that you you think that that neutral pricing uh, is is the default strategy, if you will. Uh, and I like the point that it's you're least likely to have price wars <laughs> with that strategy. but but then you go on to say that penetration pricing cannot generally be defended from a strategic viewpoint. The failures outweigh the successes. and of course, one of the major companies that you cite in this is Amazon. Uh, it, it, is that what you've seen, that when companies use penetration pricing, it's, it's not very strategic? I mean, it, it backfires? Uh,
1: take GoPro as a great example, because they just tried to do it last year, and their profits swung from $100 million uh, and forth in summer of last year to a loss of $40 million in summer of this year. Wow. By trying to say I'm going to penetrate and lower my price from 400 to 200 and take over the market. Usually it's a miscalculation of how big that lower, that lower price point market is. Just because you have a lower price doesn't mean people want it. I ride a bicycle 50 miles a weekend when I'm at home. I don't want a GoPro. Who wants to watch me ride a bike? I think. I'm not the target market. <laughs>
3: So uh, I wanted to, to ask you about uh, the, who, what industry do you see uh, is being doing the best job at pricing right now? Is there, is there one particular industry that stands out in your mind and says, okay, they're they really making some great inroads, doing some great things from a price
1: perspective? I wanted to say an industry, and then I thought, no, they just have the algorithms down. They don't actually have the strategy down. So no. I can't think of a single industry that really does pricing better than the rest. There are companies that seem to get pricing better than their peers, but not an industry. And even in those companies, like I can cite Eastman and look at how they manage transactional pricing, how they manage the input cost variances and, therefore, the price variances they have to have in the market day over day And I think Eastman Chemical has done a great job in that area. I can take a look at Piaget and said, you know, they've done a great job at managing price difference between Europe and India, where a little Vespa scooter goes for about 800 800 euros in India and and 3,500 euros in in Italy, and how, how Vespa has managed that price differences and their penetration into India very well. I can point to areas where companies got specific problems right but to say that there's one company or one industry that's really outperforming, you're asking too much. There is so no. much <laughs> runway for improvement and pricing. It's a career. And thank God for it,
3: right? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good industry to be in. Uh, it is. But uh, when, in, in all seriousness, ask, who, who – who, go ahead, go ahead. No, don't go ahead. Noah. <laughs> All right, well, I, just, I wanted to ask, so I, I just have to ask the follow-up. Who do you think has the algorithms that are working pretty well
1: now? I definitely think in terms of algorithms, the revenue management systems in the airline, they're they are pretty far advanced. What about hotels? They're using the same systems.
3: Same systems. Okay, so the, is same there any, anything with, algorithms? Yep, right. Yeah. Right. You know, the, the one that, that uh, jumps out at me a little bit, just because I happen to be, a, a, and with you know Chicago winning the World Series, a baseball fan. I'm not a Cubs fan, but um, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting to see that baseball has moved into, into to more strategic pricing, I think, over the last couple of years.
1: All of your events, be it baseball, uh, music, Rammstein, or whoever you wish, it, Katy Perry. All of these event-based pricing are now moving towards a revenue-management-based ma- revenue approach. They're also trying to think, how do I manage scalpers so that I decrease scalping, yet still encourage customers to purchase? It is an area of rapid evolution. We still haven't found a perfect model in that, but there is a lot of things changing. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it drives me a bit crazy. I think there's
3: two artists that I can think of off the top of my head who who, who don't do that. Uh, I think it's uh, Springsteen and Garth Brooks are all up in arms about anybody paying more than you know fifty dollars for a ticket. But they're they're terrible prices. But then I look at some others in the entertainment. I'm like, oh, those are good people, good pricers. <laughs> anyway, to, that we're up against our last break here, and this is flying by. So, but I want to remind everybody that you can get a hold of us at asktsoe at verisage Also, hashtag ask tsoe if you want to follow us along on twitter or also ask any questions but right now we want to hear from our last sponsor and my employer sage
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America trn Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., these are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life?
0: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: And our guest is Tim J. Smith from Waglaf Lagla- Pricing. Just want to let our audience know that Tim does have a bunch of resources available on his website which is waglaffpricing.com, we will put that in our show notes as well including some online courses that you can take so if you're interested in this topic and want to take a deeper dive certainly we recommend that you go out and take a look at at uh, tim's stuff hey, hey tim i got one more question then i'm gonna then turn it back over to ron let him close out the show with you is there really any such thing as price gouging Or is that kind of a figment of our imagination? And if there is, give me me an example of, of where there is price gouging.
1: Well, price gouging is a legal term, and it refers specifically to, legally, to raising the price of something after a national disaster. For instance, raising the price of flashlights right after a hurricane. Did it happen? Yes. Does it happen? Well, it's illegal, so we've kind of removed that. But but I, I guess I'm using it in a more
3: generic term. Like people people say that any high price, oh, that's they're gouging me. Um, I think we had Reed, Reed Holden on. He talked about a, a refrigerator a refrigerator repair that that he had. And he, he, he said they were gouging him because they, they charged him $200 for a part or something. Uh, do you think that that's really ga- – and I made the argument. I said, well, then you didn't have to pay it. <laughs> so, but what are, what are your thoughts on that?
1: A lot of like. my thoughts on that are buyer beware. When you enter yeah. into a decision to purchase, you're making a choice to buy at the price being offered. Could you have bought it cheaper somewhere else? Usually, often, the answer is yes. Then comes the question, was it worth shopping? There are reasons why people shop at Whole Foods, and there are reasons why people shop at, the, at Walmart. Those are different buying occasions. They're different prices for the same piece of banana. Why are you buying? Why do you accept or don't accept that price?
2: You know, Tim, this is Ron again, and I get to a lot of arguments with some people that say, oh, prices are set by supply and demand, but I, I kind of love what you wrote in Pricing Done Right. You say beyond economic benefits, there are behavioral, emotional, hedonistic, and psychological benefits though calculating the benefits may be difficult their impact on customer choices often outweighs purely economic arguments alone and I think that's a pretty substantial statement that basically says you know I always love to say and I think you quoted me somewhere in a LinkedIn that values a feeling it's not so much a number and and I I think your statement here seems to back that up what
4: do you think?
1: It definitely goes along with it, though well, I wouldn't have used the same words, Ron. Um, and it comes out of basic research in behavioral economics, psychology, how the humans think. Uh, I was just I was just earlier today taking a look at one of my favorite books. Uh, it's by Gert Gergen Zink. I never can say his name. Gerger yes, I know who you're talking Earth. about. Yep, yep. Yeah. We do think... And we we think with our emotions before our logic kicks in. Kahneman talked about this in thinking fast versus slow. And often our emotions have to drive our logic. And if you can use the emotions and your logic together, you're going to seal more deals and move forward with pricing. But even if you had to play off between those two and choose one, I'd choose the emotions over logic any day because the emotions come first. The logic tends... To back up that emotions, unless you're extremely rational and are willing to override those emotions.
2: I couldn't agree with that more I mean it, when you start looking at the behavioral side and the emotional and the, all the other research coming out on on how we think and how we make decisions it just seems overwhelming to me that th- this is what makes pricing so fascinating because it's so inner Disciplinary. You have to be part psychiatrist, part economist, part actuary, part, you know, part finance person. I mean, it's just so you have to synthesize all of these different disciplines, and I just find that intellectually challenging.
1: It is. That's what's, that's why we find it fun.
2: Absolutely, I know it sounds <laughs> twisted and warped. Uh, along those lines, Tim, when when uh, I had a, cro- a conversation with Robert Cross, and he he said something in one of his articles. It just kind of—it's always stuck in my mind, so I always love to ask pricers about this. He made a connection between having musical talent and pricing talent. He's got a theory that they—they they go together. Have you developed any theories over the course of your career in what makes a good pricer? Is there a certain profile or characteristic of somebody that makes them good in pricing? I
1: would put diplomacy number one. When you're coming out with a pricing decision or you're trying to guide pricing decisions, know that you have people who are going to say we need a lower price or we're going to lose that customer. Know you're going to have other people saying we need a higher price or it's just not worth it. And you're trying to thread the needle. You're trying to bring people together because a pricing decision made in one person but not implemented by the second person is a failed decision. So it's that diplomacy I find to be extremely useful. Yes, there are other skills as well, such as thinking strategically, core skills in mathematics, although third-order differential equations are not required. But these are core skills that are required. But I put diplomacy as probably the number one skill set I look for in people.
2: Right, well, you know, you do talk about the soft skills on the manage, management leadership side that are really important, and certainly diplomacy would be in there, so to totally agree with that. Um, Tim, you know, since I've been involved with PPS, a professional pricing society, I've seen it grown, as I'm sure you have, and, and and the amount of women coming into it, and just the people that are, you know, entering this uh, this area of pricing, which I call a profession, but um do you think that the pricers in, corporate, in the corporate world have lessened the incidence of price wars? It seems like we don't hear as much about price wars as we used to.
1: I would like to say yes, but look at the current price war going on in the airlines, hence they're unprofitable. We haven't outlawed price wars yet. One of, the, one of the things I love to say is that freedom includes the freedom to be stupid, and we still have a lot of <laughs> stupid decisions being made.
2: Okay, fair enough. Do, do you think they've lessened in intensity, that they're more strategic?
1: Well, take, I, I, I can't say yes to that either. Take the recent price war between Walmart and Amazon, and who could have the lowest price on a book, and they were both selling at below cost. And I thought, my gosh, I have two idiots trying to show that they're bigger than each other.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, well. <laughs> I guess I'll never get work with Amazon and Walmart now.
2: <laughs> if somebody wanted to move into the pricing space as a, as a pricer and, and corporation, what would be your advice?
1: Number one, read pricing strategy because it has all the (laughs) tools and techniques required to actually do that job. Join the Professional Pricing Society so you can meet other people meeting the same problems so you can do your job better. Network within your company so you understand how people are thinking so you can help them understand what you contribute and do your job better. Then understand how your pricing contributes to the whole corporate strategy and development Again, so you can do your job better.
2: Excellent. Uh, Tim, this has been so great. Um, thank you so much for being part of the Soul of Enterprise. Ed, what's on store for next week?
3: Well, next week we have another interview, Rob, uh, Ron. We have the son of Milton Friedman, uh, Professor David Friedman on.
2: Oh, geez. Looking forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours. Been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world to the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please check out our full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post our interview with Tim and links to where you can find his books and more information about them. And if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at AskTSOE at verish.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.